Hi, and welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. Today, I'm incredibly honored to present a conversation with Byron Katie, spiritual innovator and author of Loving What Is, A Thousand Names for Joy, and most recently, A Mind at Home with Itself. As many of you know, Byron Katie is the creator of The Work, a powerful process of inquiry that encourages you to identify and question your own thoughts with the goal being the end of personal suffering, a pretty lofty goal, but this woman has made great strides in helping people accomplish just this. It's always a privilege for me to speak with the teachers and leaders who come through Esalen, and today was absolutely remarkable. I have to say, I I felt Byron Katie's truth and her sincerity in every word she spoke. She is an amazing person and a really superb teacher. Please enjoy our conversation. So Byron Katie, would you mind telling me a bit about who you were before 1986? I, I like the pre-enlightenment tales, so I'm, I'm curious to know, who was that Byron Katie? You know, a very depressed individual. And, and you know, I, to my mind, there was no way out of it. I had tried everything. And so I was just stuck in that depression and so became very suicidal. And I was trying to... Um, to uh, raise three children and, and make house payments and and as an agoraphobic at the same time. So I was actually supporting my children on a telephone. We had landlines then, on, on, on a telephone from my bedroom. I mean, it was it was a um, very hard existence. And and later I discovered, you know, it was it was a, it was simply a state of mind I was attached to. Was your period of depression a long period or was it kind of like a year? You know, it was more than a decade of serious, hard, 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 hard to live in depression. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I used to I used to think there was no way out and then a way out was shown to me by some some kind of grace. Actually, I was sleeping on a floor next to my bed because I was so full of self-loathing. I didn't believe I even deserved to sleep in a bed. So one morning as I lay sleeping, a cockroach crawled over my foot and I woke up, you know, and I woke up in two ways. I woke up like we do every morning. We sleep, we wake up the morning, we go on with our lives. I woke up in that way, but I woke up. It was as though (laughs) I didn't wake up. There was no reference point for I woke up. There was absolutely no way that a mind could even think that thought because there was nothing to think it on to. So, um, so it was, um, it, it was, I could see that it was mine that created the world. And I saw in that situation, all of the, I, you know, in hindsight, I see all the suffering was gone, completely gone. And in place of that was a joy I can't describe. And it's, it's the kind of, um, it's the kind of thing you just want to pass on to to 
everyone you meet that's open to something like this, you know, to that kind of freedom. But I saw when I believed my thoughts, I suffered. And when I didn't believe them, I didn't suffer. I've come to see this is true for every human being. And so my invitation to the world is to notice that an unquestioned life is not worth living. What did you do after this process of awakening? Did you begin to teach locally or what was that process like? Well, you know, um, I just um, I just experienced, and then um, people became attracted to to this consciousness. I was sharing this at the um, SLN event this weekend that that because someone asked the question, you know, if if I'm enlightened, what do I do? And I said, well, you don't ever have to worry about that. Just be. And then I shared the experience of me just sitting on a public bench just quietly sitting on the bench. And then someone would sit down by me and then they would say something, I would say something, but I was speaking out of out of a non-depressed state, <laughs> you know, uh, prior to to suffering, you know, out of right mind, we could say. And, and then I noticed that they'd come back. And then I noticed one day, as I continued to sit on this bench, you know, day after day, just loving what is, just noticing the sky, etc., you know, that there was a line, an actual line waiting to sit by me. There was a queue day after day after day, as long as I would go sit on that bench. So that's just kind of an example of, of it's not something we have to teach or speak about or it, it, it's a, a consciousness, a clarity, and a way of being where we are right within ourselves without outside awareness needed because that outside, the outside stuff, is, um, it's a trick of mind to the ego. Yes. How much of your work is nonverbal? Because I'm noticing kind of like an energy field, and I'm, what, I'm, <laughs> what, I'm, what I'm, I'm guessing, too, is that the people who are drawn to you, too, is, is partly energetic. And I think about leaders like Amachi, Eckhart Tolle, uh-huh. who can fill a room with their presence, yes. and I'm feeling the same thing is from you. So I'm curious what, how much of your work is, is um, nonverbal. You know, um, I, um, for example, I've been doing once a year a silent four-day retreat, and people love it. They absolutely love it. And there's a lot of silence in my nine-day school for the work. And in my experience, you know, it's like I just said I just. But I have no proof I just said I just because it's imaginary at this point. So the question is, have I ever spoken at all? And in my awareness, that could never happen. And if that sounds a little spooky, you know, I, it's not as though I, I can't live out of the dream. It's just not real. But I can, I can hear and I can imagine when I said, and I imagine. How do you feel that your work has changed? Because what I'm understanding is that you've been teaching continuously since 1986. It's been your calling. Yes. How has It's your been my work- calling because people call. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, it's not my calling. <laughs> what, I'm, what I'm really enjoying in this process of speaking with you is that I can feel my, um, I'm a beginner to your work, so I'm feeling the understanding. I'm feeling locking into place and, and, and hearing what you're saying. Oh, good, good, good. Yeah, friends just, just living out of, off of the same page. 
How have you, how has it changed for you to, to teach since 1986? Um, my um, ability to articulate thoughts and senten- sentences um, become easier and easier. As I work with people or as they do their work and I witness it, I, I learn to speak as they speak, meaning I've learned to express what there are no words for in ways that can be understood. Yes. Oh, that's interesting. Um, You mentioned your son Ross in your book, uh, Loving What Is, that he likes to do a kind act and not get found out. And I thought this was just brilliant. Can you talk about that? Yes. um, Ross, (laughs) I was um, in a a shopping mall with with my son Ross, and he... um, he said, Mom, wait right here. I'll be right back. And um, he, I sat down on a bench. And he went into the store, and he's not a shopper, you know. And, and I thought, I wonder what he's going to buy. And, and I was just walking around, you know, with that thought, but not necessarily even wondering. And the store happened to have just, it was just solid windows. I just walked over, and I was looking, thinking maybe I would see, see him in the store, and I did. And he was he was looking around the shirt department. He found a shirt, and he uh, took the shirt to the cashier, and he paid for the shirt, and then he walked back to the place where he chose the shirt. He put the shirt back on a hanger or whatever it was on another shirt and and walk back out. And so um, I said, are, are you done, honey? And he said, yeah. And we just kept walking. And I said, you know, I was watching you from the window and you bought a shirt, you paid for it and you put it back. And I said, what was that all about? And he said, well, I used to steal. And he says, every time I pass a store and recognize that maybe I took something from that store I go back into the store, I buy it and put it back and and to make, you know, it, it's like we've learned to make right our past. It's like, it's, it's like we have breadcrumbs that bring guilt with it. And so we're picking up our breadcrumbs. And so how can we live in the present if there are breadcrumbs all around us? It's a pretty crummy existence. And so um, I said, well, why don't you just give them the money? And he says, I've tried everything, Mom. It really messes with their accounting. They don't know what to do with it. They, you, it, it, you know, they just, it, it really is difficult for them. And um, this is what I've ended up with in the process. And yeah, so that's the story of, of Ross on the other side of doing his work. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, it's the turnaround. Yes, the turnarounds are so powerful. From your book, uh, Loving What Is, I, was, I underlined this passage. You go from, I don't ever want to live with Paul if he doesn't change, to I am willing to live with Paul if he doesn't change, to I look forward to living with Paul if he doesn't change. And this is about embracing life as it is. Yeah, very powerful way to live. In fact, a woman um, in the lunch line um, today um, that was in the event was um, sharing with me, she was asking my permission to use that very thing in her workshops. And and uh, if she credited me, and and I said, you know, absolutely, absolutely do that. And... Um, 
and, uh, you know, pass it on. It, it, it's really powerful. And she said, well, it's changed my life. It's absolutely changed my life. It's changed my husband's life. And she said, she said, when I'm angry at you, what you're thinking and believing about that is what upsets you. Me being angry at you isn't what's upsetting you. And she's obviously been to the school for the work. And he could not understand what she was talking about. So um, she showed him out of her own experience how that worked. And it's been magical for them in their marriage. So, yeah, he says, oh, my gosh, you're right. You know, you can't upset me. So then he would say, I'm willing to be angry at me. Anyway, like that. But, you know, on, I have on, I have had an amazing time with my husband, Stephen Mitchell, working, in, you know, producing our new book, which is A Mind at Home with Itself. And it is, he has translated um, a, the great text, the, the Diamond Sutra. And it's, um, for some people, difficult to become intimate with. And this translation is, it's, um, it's, it's a beautiful thing. But he would read uh, one chapter at a time to me and ask him what, how I experienced that in my life. Mm-hmm. And so then my dialogues are in there. And how to do the work is in there. And I mean, it's, it's um, I'm just starting, uh, Steve and I are just starting our book tour tomorrow. Okay. So this is really, you know, like a launch here at SLN. And so it's, um, it's a very powerful book. And I invite people interested in self-realization to, to sit in that, um, in the consciousness of uh, the Diamond Sutra. Are the Diamond Sutras part of Buddhism? Yes, and I just learned that I had I've never heard of the Diamond Sutra, but oh my God, he'd read me a chapter, and I would say things like, "Honey, you know, it's it's it stands alone, you know. You don't you don't. Of course, he's impeccable in his translation, you know, as as out of that consciousness as he experiences it, as he as he writes and the music that he has the talent to, you know, it's, it's such a beautiful flow and. And um, he's, he's, you know, I think that um, um, in his way, he's such a, a master, writing's his life. But um, I would tell him, you know, I don't want to, I can't add or subtract anything to that, honey. It's just, you know, it's just so impeccable. Mm-hmm. And he said, yeah, you can, you know, let's, let's get some experience so that people can uh, better understand this consciousness that is so powerful. So as he was reading chapters, I said, you, you know, honey, the, um, the Buddha isn't talking to one of his students. It's not a dialogue with one of his students. It's the Buddha speaking to the Buddha. Mm. And, and so um, those people who are interested in, in uh, that, you know, a consciousness like, um, you know, that reputation of the Buddha and, you know, that, that, that um, beautiful source that we all live out of, that impeccable nature we always live out of that's immovable and, and, and that we can't defy without suffering being involved to even be Begin to think away from it or move away from it consciously. We feel that. So, um, for people interested in 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 anything I'm saying now, um, I invite everyone to that new book. Oh, lovely! And the, the name of the book is again is a mind. A mind at home with itself. Oh, it's a phrase I often use. You know, it, it's like the, the end of war when when the mind loves everything it thinks. Duality, duality 
it ceases to be an experience and you're just living in what I would say loosely, this perfect world without opposite. No opposite, no downside. And of course, that's um, the work I, I um, invite people to, you know, inquiry, self-inquiry. Now, if I am fully in embracing life as it is, how will I know? Well, you know, you'll, you, you, it, it's a state of mind where you're loving everything you think, or you could not love everything you see and experience and be. Yeah. So you, unlike the Buddha, you work mostly in a kind of a Socratic dialogue uh, style. Is that right? You work back well, on, on, you know, people on identify what they're thinking and believing in a given situation, and then we question it. And the first question is, um, is what you're believing true? The second one is, can you absolutely know that what you're believing is true? And the third question is, notice how you react, what happens to your life emotionally and in every other way. Just notice how you react when you believe what you believe to be true. And, of course, we're dealing with one particular assumption, and I'm just, Lucy, taking you through it here. And, and then the last question, who or what would you be without that belief if you didn't believe what you're believing. And then I invite people to find opposites. And like if, for example, um, he, um, he was unkind to me, and I just, I just found an opposite. He was kind to me. And I begin just to just try it on like a new pair of shoes or something just to see how it fits. And, and is that, you know, is, is, is that something to look at as well? And then the mind begins to open to another world. He hurt me. For example, if I'm working with that one, he helped me. And an, another opposite might be, I hurt him. And then your, your heart can just crack wide open with that. And you notice a lot of breadcrumbs there, too. <laughs> you know, so um, those are breadcrumbs worth admitting and making right where you can and moving on with your life in the present mm-hmm. without the history, without past, which is how the, oh my gosh, the apparent future can exist. So you take care of one, you've taken care of the other. Yes. You had an interesting chapter in your book that I applied to the realm of, of politics, and you, you spoke about people who were afraid to give up their their thoughts, afraid to give up the, the feeling of being stressed because they felt that without that feeling of being stressed, they would not be motivated to go out and try to make change. Yeah. And of course, on, on the inquiry brings about the end of fear. And where we burn out and where we, where we can't make change, only fear burns us out and only fear prevents us from doing what we know to do. And, you know, we're at our best when we're serving each other. That is how, you know, we serve ourselves. But when we're burned out or we think we're going to lose something we have, it's going to cost us too much, that's where our service ends. And so inquiry frees us up to um, to live a life that's worth living, you know, a life of joy and right-mindedness and balance. You had a fascinating passage in your book where you're talking about, I think it was being on a beach and seeing litter there and the feeling that someone could have of, of feeling, I can't believe that this earth is so polluted. 
and your take on it was, I am part of nature. I'm going to, I'm in the perfect place to go over and pick up that, that piece of litter. And this was all as it was supposed to be. That's my litter. And if I don't pick it up, that's on me. That's my litter. If I pick it up, I'm nature. I'm just living out of nature. That's great. And also, you know, I can walk in the most beautiful place and see litter. And and my old mind prior to the work, prior to inquiry, was to say, how could people do that? You know, people are so thoughtless. They just don't care. And, oh, my gosh, I just don't get how they can be that. Whereas today I see litter like that, and I just think, oh, my gosh, just when you think you don't have a job, you're given one. Everyone wants employment. <laughs> I like the part in your book where you say, people, you, people ask me, did I have a religion before this? And you say, yes, my religion was my children should pick up their socks. Yeah. yeah, my religion was whatever I was believing in the moment. And when that belief was threatened, then I would go to war to keep my identity. At the time, I would not have seen it that way. But my identity was threatened. You know, for example, my identity, I am the one that knows. I am the one that right. You're the one that's wrong. You know, putting identities on them and creating my own identity and not even being aware of it. You know, just untruth after untruth after untrue assumption running in me with no awareness as to how to question those assumptions and judgments. The topic of being in someone else's business. You, you wrote, the next time you're feeling stress or discomfort, ask yourself whose business you're in mentally, and you may burst out laughing. What, do, what does that mean? Well, let's see. What's an example? If, if, if my daughter is in Texas and I'm in California, and my grandchildren are there with her, and she's there running her life, but I'm here in California, but mentally I'm in Texas. So, you know, running her life. And I'm talking to you, but I'm, my identity is in, is in Texas. So I'm split. You know, what self am I? Am I the one talking to you? Am I the one in Texas? Or am I the one that talked to you, that image of me talking to you in the past? Or the now? I mean, those selves are all over the place. So just to become aware of who am I, you know, I'm not, you know, just catch up with your beautiful self. (laughs) Do you find people who engage in this work uh, report an expansion of self? Absolutely. Yes. Oh my gosh. Identity shifting, you know, in the opposite polarity of where they were going. Identification and like a snake skin, just, just, just snake shedding its skin, just identities, just Fall away, fall away, fall away, fall away. And it's just as simple. You know, this work is free on thework.com. No one has to, no one has to pay for this work. It's, uh, and how to do it. And it's on YouTube. And I mean, it's, it's, um, it's free. Everyone has a right to freedom. A great quote from your book, Loving What Is. Love is so big that you can die in it. Die of self and be fully consumed in it. So simple. My sons are always right. My daughter is always right. My friends are always right. And I get to realize it or suffer. Mm. Can you speak about that? Well, if, 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 if one of my children say, Mom, you're wrong, the moment I defend that, you know, I'm, 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 I'm doing nothing more than defending the identity of I'm your mother, 
identity of I'm the one that's right. And you need to take on the identity of you're the one that's wrong. And you need to admit it. I mean, it's a mess. So if my children say, Mom, you're wrong, I'm going to say, you know, if, if, if it's true, you know, sweetheart, you know, I can't find it. Will you help me? I see you see something I don't see. And then they enlighten me. And in that we join. They support me in opening my mind, expanding my mind. So it's, it's, it's like the, the, the new paradigm, the end of war. But in my old world, it was my son would say, you're wrong. And I'd say, I'm your mother. How dare you? Don't contradict me. Okay, so who started the war? Was it my son or was it me? My son saw me. My identity was threatened. So I attacked. And defense is the first act of war. So... You know, as I say this, did you hear how my son spoke to me? So now I'm going to go, you know, collect an army to keep my identity to prove that it's intact. And in fact, my son is who I believe him to be. So really, in that I never even meet my son. My son, who is wiser by far than I can ever be when I'm asleep. I think this might be a difficult question, but what is your relationship with your own ego at this moment? I love it. I love it. For number one, it doesn't exist. And it's perfectly willing now. We have a relationship going where it loves inquiry. And that's where the title of my book came from. It's a mind at home in itself. You know, the ego believes without identity it's going to die, but when it finds a home in itself, it can rest. It's just, it's, it's, it's an amazing, mind is not an enemy. Actually, mind is, is nothing. You can't touch it. It's not physical. It's, it's um, like being here to discover the ultimate truth, and that's not a physical experience. On that note, you've be- and and you don't have to answer this if you don't want to. Oh, that's always the case. Yes, that. Is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, on that note, you've become kind of a, a public figure, you know, through your books, your your um, and through your teachings. Your picture is on a book, and I'm I'm just wondering, it, is it ever present challenges egoically to be the focal point of um, of other people's kind of um, blossoming? Um. You know, not not ever, because I am who people believe me to be, so what can I do about that? So I'll just be me. That's fascinating. So what you're kind of saying is you're not checking into their projections. No, they have a right to to what they believe. Mind has a right to life. It has a, a right to live. And there's nothing that I would think that you wouldn't think. There's only one mind, and... And if I don't love what I think, I'm not going to love what you think. If I love what I think, I love what you think. So inquiry just clears that field. Oh, that's fascinating. It's like there's nothing I'm not interested in. There's nothing that doesn't interest me. It's all a, it, it's all the, um, a construct of mind, and that's fascinating. It, especially, you know, um, what I'm aware of completely is mind doesn't exist. So it's a, it's a, it's a silent science. Do you have other teachers? Do you are there people from other realms of spirituality uh, or religion that you feel you check into and you gain clarification? Yes, everyone. 
what is your secret superpower? What's something that you're really good at that probably not many people know about? Silence. Yeah. Do you have any self-care tips that enable you to move through life um, at your best? Yes, travel lightly, question your mind. That's great. What does Esalen um, provide for you or, or mean for you? You've been here, coming here for going on 16 years, and you've been a great supporter of our community. Uh, I'm, I'm curious about what the place represents for you. Um. Okay, I'll, I'll tell you truthfully, okay? Lightheartedness, leisure, laughter, great food, <laughs> ocean, oh my gosh, um, the hot tubs, you know, the silence, and the, the, the everywhere you look, there's no bad view. It's, it's just gorgeous. And again, the staff and how they serve the participants here and their interest in world peace. You spoke brilliantly about mm, finding if you are in your own business. Do you want things for the people you love, for your husband, for your children? Well, you know, I see, I have the gift of seeing very clearly that, that they have everything they need and more. Other than what they're thinking and believing, the world is okay. But just now, you know, just now. Well, thank you, Byron Katie, for, um, for sitting with me and, uh, and teaching me. Oh, my. It's a privilege to sit with an open mind, and so we have much in common. Thank you. I love... I love... Um, I love. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's episode was produced in conjunction with Cheryl Franzel, Geraldine Hess, Lori Putnam, Shannon Hudson, and Ian Golden. Our music today was produced by Nico Holloman. To hear more episodes, search for Voices of Esalen on iTunes and please subscribe. Or find us on the web at esalen.org. That's E-S-A-L-E-N.org. All of our episodes are archived there. Until next time, be well. <laughs>